Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Well, hey there, Dr. Robin. How are you? You know what? It is a good day. Um, I'm doing well. I've decided to grow a beard. So I saw that Twitter feed. Yeah. And I love the concept. I love the thought. I'm interested to see how um, full it gets. Yeah. And, you know, um, whether you are able to really kind of grow this amazing beard or whether you'll look like a, you know, 11 year old um, child. Yes. Um, I'm going to love it either way, but I'm interested <laughs> to see how it comes in. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, that's the big mystery right now. Um, my T levels are um, are um, at the at the place of what a, uh, a trans man would be, um, even though I'm microdosing, which says a little bit about my genetics that maybe, maybe I had more testosterone to begin with. What does that mean for right. being non-binary, you know? So, um, but yeah, I've decided that. And then we welcomed a baby to our home last night. It's our Rona love child. And, <laughs> And her name is Diego, and she's a five-week-old black kitten, and we're very excited to have her. She is adorable. Yeah, we. you were the first to find out. I got to FaceTime with her this morning, and yeah. she is just so sweet and tiny and snuggly and loud. She's yes. a boisterous little thing. Yeah, yeah. Kind, of, uh, which, kind, of, you know, kind of like you. Uh, or uh, or like you. So she can't wait to meet her aunt. I'm so excited. I'm so <laughs> excited. But tell me how you are. Um, I am well. I am well. Uh, I had the privilege of voting yesterday. Yes. Uh, I know you also voted this week. And we are, um, you know, we're in the midst of early voting here in Tennessee and Every state is putting up record numbers of early votes. It's interesting to me to um, to watch uh, democracy happen in this longer stretch of time. You know, mm-hmm. we're so used to knowing that there are people going in early voting, but it's not a part of our news cycle. It's not a part of our um, normal lexicon. Like you really only early voted if you knew you were going to be out of town for election day or something, but we're getting to experience this um, early voting uh, understanding in states across the country. And Mm -hmm. I'm really loving watching 
people exercise this right and be engaged in a process in a way that some of them haven't ever before. Um, There's this really, we were in line yesterday at our election commission and about three people in front of me, there was a young man who was probably in his mid twenties. I would put him at, you know, 26, 28, something like that. And the election commission officer said to him, you know, uh, have you just now moved to Tennessee? And he said, yes. And she said, have you ever voted before? And he said, no, this is my very first time. Oh, wow. And she got this massive smile on her face and said, I'm so proud of you. This is a big deal. This is important. And all of the sudden in this election commission, people started clapping Wow! and like giving him, you know, virtual high fives and affirmation for, you know, uh, moving into a space where he's participating in the democracy of America. Now, look, that doesn't minimize the continued voter suppression that's still happening. And just the fact that our lines are so long means that, you know, voter suppression is still very alive and real, but it was, it was heartwarming to Mm -hmm. both for my partner and I to vote and to, you know, engage in the work, but also to see this young man just, um, you know, really be engaged in the process and, and for his first time to, for us to all get to experience that. So it was, it was great. Well, when we went and voted on Tuesday, um, I had about an hour and a half before I had to be at the trans clinic and the line was pretty long. Um, but I, I was like, well, you know, we're already here. Let's just go ahead and stand in line. And if at one I'm not inside, then I'll leave and go and I'll come back. Right. And so we were standing in line and it took about 40 minutes in, in the entirety to, to vote and everything. But while we were standing in line, there was a woman of color, black woman, who was in a wheelchair, who had obviously been there to vote. And a white older woman in a van came to, to pick her up. And it was really wonderful to see um, how this, these friends or these colleagues or this community take care of each other. And, and, you know, both of them were, were of age and, and, you know, I, I wish, I wish some of the younger people would, would be shuttling our older folks around, but we've got older folks shuffling older folks around. And this older woman said, let me push you to the car, got the woman in the car, folded up the, the wheelchair and put the wheelchair in the van. And, you know, I, I talked at Butler University last night and and I and I shared that story about witnessing this exchange of care and we just need to steward more care in yes. this process because the voter suppression is very real. Yes. And I know that you're working on election day. Yes. And I'm going to be watching the polls and watching the news on election day. Um, but I, I feel very excited about this election, even though it's very scary. Yes. I feel very excited that so many people are showing up to vote. Um, our friend Joe, who works at the People's Hub, who I hope that we can have on the podcast at some point. He's a black queer man. 
he waited 40 minutes and was proud to wait 40 minutes to vote in Marquita Bradshaw into the Senate. So, um, yeah, um, there, there's a lot happening. Um, there is, you know, we're 12 days out from the election. Well, and this is a perfect time for us to let our listeners know that the activist theology project is actually going to be hosting a space for all of you on election night, all of you that are, you know, in the U.S. And if you're not in the U.S. and want to be a part of this, you are welcome to. Uh, We are going to be gathering from 8 to 10 Eastern time on Zoom. We're going to have two spaces available for people. One space that is just kind of a come, bring your bourbon, bring your opinion, sit and chat, watch the the results come in. I mean, the results meaning asterisk, the results that we will be able to see in real time. But the returns, because there's lots happening with the Senate and the House and everything. Right. So it's just a space to watch the returns. Right. And so you and I and our um, amazing colleague, Jeff Kochi, will be hosting that space and Mm -hmm. people can come and chat with us. And then we are going to have a second space that is going to be hosted by Aaron Law that will be a space for um, kind of a, a decompression and embodiment space, a space that you can enter and not be overcome with the frenzy of the results to really sit and be led by Aaron in embodiment exercises and breathing techniques. And if you find that you need to just simply take a step back from everything that is election, uh, that would be a good space for you to occupy. And so, and you're welcome to hop back and forth from one zoom space to Mm -hmm. the other. So if that is, if that's something you're interested in, uh, check our socials. We will have the information and the Zoom links available for you to enter either one of those those rooms and join us on election night, which yep. as we said is, you know, in a week and a half. We're we are really thrilled to do this and to offer this space for folks and um, I mean, it might just be you, me, and Jeff sitting around drinking bourbon, it might you know, be. Bitch, bitching about what's happening on TV. But if anybody wants to pop in and see that in real time, it'll be an experience. Yes. Yes, it will <laughs> so, be. Well, we are going to shift gears a little bit this week and um, talk about something that is near and dear to both of us, something that we both um, have experienced. Um, We recognize that many, many of us, more than I think any of us ever used to think, suffer from one kind of mental illness or another. And when we say mental illness, that could range from, um, you know, being anxious in big crowds all the way up to suffering from um, significant um, mental illness like um, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, any anything within that range of space. 
We are going to start this episode and give you a little bit of a background about ourselves, but we're going to make this into a bit of a series. And over the course of the next few months, we will have experts pop in and out, and we're going to be diving deeply into what it looks like to be a part of the work of liberation while we also, in many instances, suffer from uh, one form or another of mental illness. I'm really excited about this because there's so much stigma around mental illness. And there's so just like there's so much stigma about people living with autism. And it was one of the reasons why I wanted to come out and say, hey, look, my brain works differently. And it doesn't mean that I'm any less human or any less creative. It just means that I process things differently. And let's reduce the stigma. And let's create conditions for the flourishing of all of humanity, right? So I'm super excited about this episode and our follow up episode, which I believe Hillary, Dr. Hillary McBride will be able to join us for for um, a therapist and activist based in Canada. And I'm super thrilled to be sharing our stories around mental illness. And I'm really looking forward to taking a deep dive into the role of mental illness and our work in activism. Yes. Well, I say we get started. Let's do it. And um, we're excited you all are on this journey with us. Hey friends, this is Anna. I have a story uh, both that I tell myself and that I know of myself as it surrounds mental illness. And I think that I'm really um, interested in sharing it with you because it's important to me that we are on this journey together. In 2002, I would have considered myself one of the most put together people that I know. Um, I was in my late 20s. I was well on my way to the professional career that I aspired towards. I was active in a church. I had been married for a few years and was really living into that. I didn't in any way, shape, or form see myself as vulnerable, as um, other, as anything except a successful professional human who was well on her way to doing all of the things that I aspired to do in the world. I also, in 2002, had a best friend whose name was Lynn. And Lynn and I had been best friends since we were elementary school age. We grew up together in the church. We um, had, we, we, we did everything together. We were the kind of friends that knew each other's deepest, darkest secrets and engaged with one another in a way that was authentic and real and truthful and fun and beautiful. 
I often tell people that Lynn was kind of an extension of me. We, if, if we had, if we each had zippers up the side of us, we would zip in together. We were so close uh, at church that we would be the first kids through the line at our potluck dinners. And those of you that are, you know, good Protestant and and maybe not so Protestant uh, churchgoers will know, you know, the the glory that is a potluck. And we would make our way through the line. And the only thing on our plate at the end of the line was a chicken leg and two deviled eggs. And the people at church used to joke and call us the leg legs and eggs twins. We were known as legs and eggs because of the way that we would go through the potluck line. The story is long and it's um, cumbersome in many ways, but I will just simply say that Lynn suffered from postpartum depression. Uh, She has two amazing children. Um, who are now in their 20s. And in 2002, her children were nine and five. And after a series of really long and intensive battles with postpartum, Lynn succumbed to her depression and took her own life on June 14th of 2002. We knew Lynn was sick. We knew Lynn was suffering. Uh, We knew that there was a need for us to be engaged with her at those moments. Um, And yet depression and her illness was such that she wasn't feeling the love and the care that we were uh, giving her and that we were encouraging her to stick around for. Everything about my life, everything about my existence changed on that day, on that day that the best friend that I've ever, I had ever known in my entire life left the earth. I became someone that I didn't recognize. I was sad all the time. I was confused. I was angry. I I went through the collective series of emotions that anyone goes through when they suffer uh, a close death or the the, uh, trauma of someone leaving. And yet I also became very aware of my own capacity to hit rock bottom a capacity that I didn't think was possible. I had never suffered from depression. I had never been on any kind of medication other than medication to help my allergies and my asthma. I found myself in the office of a therapist several weeks after Lynn's death because I couldn't function. I wasn't working. I wasn't showing up for things. I found that my eyes were weeping all the time. And 
I assumed at that point in time that this was a temporary thing for me, that I was sad. I was missing her. I was confused by her death and I would get over it. And what has since happened in the last 18 years is that I have unpacked a significant amount of trauma through really wonderful therapists. Um, That trauma includes the death of my best friend, but it also includes a, a host of things that I have been dealing with for the entirety of my life that I always or that I never recognized were a part of my makeup. And whether that's because I was a perfectionist growing up or because I was a part of a family that didn't show emotion in a way that was um, acceptable or welcomed. Um, I I mean, I, I have had enough therapy to know all the reasons and all the ins and outs, but I have discovered that the first 20 something years of my life, I actually was living with all of the same mental illness that I have now. I was just too proud and too much in denial to recognize that I needed help for it. When I was younger, it manifested in different ways. Um, There were a couple of times where as a child I was caught, I I got caught stealing and um, was it an innocent childhood prank or cry for help? Yes, probably, but it was a response to something. And since 2002, I have been on Um, antidepressants. I have been diagnosed with anxiety disorder. I have also been diagnosed with ADHD, which is less related to my mental illness, but still very much a manifestation of the trueness of who I am and the realness of how my brain works. Um, And I'm someone who has become what I would consider to be radically empathetic to those who live with the struggle of mental illness in their day-to-day life. I know that I am a better version of myself when I am on my medication. I know that I am able to control my emotions. I'm able to get work done. I'm able to function in a way that is what many would consider societally acceptable because I have taken care of my mental illness, both from a therapeutic standpoint and from a a medicinal standpoint. And yet I also know that there are many of you out there who are not able to either get the care that you need are not able to afford the care that you need, or possibly haven't yet recognized that there might be something going on in your brain that needs a little extra care, that needs a little extra um, something to help it um, work in a way that allows you to function successfully. 
And look, I don't put any kind of pressure on any of you to adhere to a status quo that uh, isn't that that is that is you know upheld by a supremacist value system. But what I hope for you is that your journey with mental illness or your journey into discovering who you are and how you work is one that makes you a better version of yourself. And so as we begin to tell these stories of who we are, how we work, how our brains work, and how we see ourselves, um, I hope that hearing my story has both let you into a little bit of my own life, as well as help you understand a little bit about the empathetic posture that um, prepares me to do this work of activism in the world. I love that we're telling stories. I I um, picked up Diego because she was crying. And so I'm, I'm going to tell my story while holding this baby. Um, you know, my story is that at 16, I suffered a brain aneurysm and had two surgeries to correct it. And my family thought I was crazy because I had to have brain surgery. But really, I was born with a blood clot in my brain that exploded um, when I was performing for the U.S. Olympic Festival opening ceremonies or practicing to perform. And, and we don't know if that brain surgery, if that aneurysm created my depression or or what but um after i after i finished seminary um i wanted to do a phd i didn't know where i wanted to go i was working at starbucks and so i was getting up at three o'clock in the morning and showing up at five and working from five to one and i fell into a deep dark depression the, the mowers are coming right now, so you may hear some of that noise. Um, but I fell into a really deep depression and um, just couldn't see beyond that point. Um, so dark, so dark. Um, I knew that I wasn't fulfilled working at Starbucks. Uh, it's the hardest work I've ever done. But I didn't know what else to do. I, I was paralyzed. And um, I had never suffered from depression before. I had never, um, I, was, I was in my um, late 20s and had um, regular moods up until then, but um, fell into a depression. Well, I got help. And I was put on an antidepressant, and it helped a little bit, but I still, um, I still was pretty down. Um, what was really interesting is that in two thousand and eight, I 
I started to have a psychotic break. I, I was hearing things. I was hallucinating. I was paranoid. And um, I eventually was hospitalized and was was misdiagnosed with having bipolar disorder. And, well, I was diagnosed then and lived um, lived with this diagnosis for 10 years before I started seeing um, a psychiatrist at Vanderbilt who thinks I was misdiagnosed because I don't have mood shifts. Um, the only shift that I have is to depression and anxiety. And I did a lot of work on accepting this diagnosis of having bipolar disorder and um, living with a really severe mental illness and trying to um, incorporate this all into my life. And as a queer person, as a trans person, the last thing I wanted was another label that would prevent me from getting adequate care. And it's really scary to live with any diagnosis of mental illness, but I had done a lot of work. And a couple years ago, I got referred to Vanderbilt Psychiatry and of course, I don't have any of my my chart or anything, but I just told my experience. I'm like, I don't want to be paranoid again. That was really scary. And and they said, um, you had a lot of trauma in your life and you were depressed. I, I don't think it's bipolar disorder because I talked about how I don't have mood shifts. And even on medicine, people have mood shifts. And um, that's not my experience. The only shift that I have is maybe a little dip here and there, but no dip up or no increase, right, um, to mania. And so I've been working with Vanderbilt psychiatrists to get clearer on my experience of mental health. And um, as I've talked with different medical professionals in psychiatry, they think that I live with major depression with psychosis. That's still really scary because um, I don't ever want to have a break again. It, it freaked me the hell out. Um, and, you know, antipsychotics are cost prohibitive. I can't pay for the medicine. My, well, my insurance won't pay for it. It's $1,500 for an antipsychotic. I don't have that kind of money every month. That's how much my rent is. And um, so it's like, do I pay rent or do I get this medicine? But thankfully, Vanderbilt has a program where they give you access to the medicine and it pays for it through a grant. So I'm able to get medicine through there. But we're working now maybe to wean me off some of the medicine that I don't need so that I can just kind of feel what what is what is life like without medicine but living with depression and anxiety is no small feat um i remember when the pandemic hit all of my trauma responses happened at one time you know and the scarcity modality of like not having enough food and so living with depression and anxiety is something that I live with every day. Um, I call freedom, my emotional support animal. And, and now Diego will be my other emotional support animal. And, you know, it's amazing what animals can do for your mental health. And, you know, people may joke at that or laugh at that, 
but I'm a lot calmer when I'm home with Frida than when I am out in public. So I just have a real heart for people living with different mental health experiences. And also I have a heart for those who don't have access because that's my story. I don't have access and I've had to utilize systems that um, will help me get access. And I've had to rely on people to send in forms and whatnot. Um, so, but that's, that's my story of mental health and not one that, not one that I'm shy to talk about either. Well, friends, I hope that our, in this sharing of these stories, you all have learned a little bit more about us, but I hope you've also recognized that, I mean, like, this is something we need to talk about, right, Robin? Like we're, yeah. I mean, we are, we are normal, uh, privileged people who s- struggle with, um, both the, the, you know, the understanding of how our brains work as well as, you know, discovering how we have access to the solutions for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting being these people doing this kind of work in the world, right? I think I mentioned in my story, I feel like I am much more empathetic to people that I meet on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, it, it informs my, uh, my pastoral care mm-hmm. capacity in ways that I really would, I don't think I would have had the, the, um, the understanding to, to do, um, had I not also suffered. And I, I think that, it also empowers me to be all that much more confident in the work because I am able to empathize as well as understand how I overcame something mm-hmm. that I, I didn't think would ever happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. How is the, how do you think your work in the world has been affected by your understanding of your own mental, mental health? Well, I think that I've become much more patient with myself Mm. and much more patient with others Yeah, because of, you know, even, you know, like I can't get up early and work. It just, it's not, it's not how my brain, my brain needs to come online and I need some time. And so I, I can't start my day really until 10 o'clock. And I've just had to be patient with myself. And I think my being patient with myself has helped me be patient with others mm. who who either live with different abilities or different experiences of mental health. Um, and that, that impacts the work, right? I mean, the work becomes much more, um, much more intentional when, when we, when we work at a slower pace. Yeah. So, yeah, you have that gift. 
I, I don't have that gift. The, I am not blessed with, um, a patience gene. Um, I am, I have to work very hard to be patient both with myself, um, and with others. I'm, I am, I am much more patient with others than I am with myself. Um, that is a, that is another, you know, discovery that I made in, in, um, therapy regarding these, you know, perfectionist tendencies that I was brought up to, um, embrace. Right. And that, you know, there, there was no, there was no missing a deadline. There was no being a B student. There was no, uh, you know, not, uh, winning at everything I attempted to do. And, and those, those tendencies manifest in me in ways that I'm often not proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that my capacity to not be as hard on myself has even more extended my capacity to, to not be hard on others. Yeah. And you teach me a lot mm. when it comes to that. I mean, look, I give you, I give you shit all the time. Um, and you give me shit all the time. And we talk about how different we are and how, you know, different we, we, um, how differently we work in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my, my understanding of you as a full and a whole person as someone who has needs that are um, both related to your, um, you know, the the beauty of your brain and related to the beauty of your body have helped me understand um, that um, it's, you know, we, our differences inform us in ways that uh, supersede and enhance mm-hmm. the, the lives that we're living. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I bitch about, I bitch at you all the time, but I'm grateful that you, I'm grateful that you give me that perspective that I, yeah. that I just am not, I'm not used to seeing. Yeah. Um, I'm not used to having. So, well, friends, we hope that you have enjoyed kind of the introduction to this conversation we have a lot more to share. We have a lot more to talk about. We're going to, we're going to have a lot more to say both about our understanding of mental illness, as well as the ways that it informs our work in the world and the ways that it can and, and maybe might inform your work in the world. Um, I know this has been a little bit of a different episode for many of you. You're used to hearing us, you know, um, bitch and complain about um, and and take on the the understanding of white supremacy and and supremacist culture in the world, and I think that we will get there with this topic um, because, like it or not, this understanding of illness in whatever way it manifests itself is a construct that whiteness has um has informed in in real ways well and a supremacist value would not exercise vulnerability in sharing stories yes. and so we are trying to break those barriers 
and practice vulnerability and transparency and talk about how imperfect we are. Yes. And how there's a lot of support in both of our lives to create conditions for us to do this work. And some of that comes from a pill bottle. Yes. And a pharmacy. (laughs) And doctors and and therapists. Yes. Well, friends, we are going to continue this conversation. Um, As Robin said, we're really lucky that Hillary McBride is going to join us on our next episode surrounding mental health. But we'd also love to hear your stories. We'd love to hear what it is that makes you tick. We'd love to um, be engaged with you as you are on your own journey um, surrounding your mental health. And feel free to share those stories with us to tweet your, your um, thoughts with us. You can find us on all the platforms at activist theology and activist and theology share a T <laughs> and we, um, I think we'll just close this episode with yeah. um, profound gratitude for you all listening to us and for your capacity to hear and hold these stories that we have about ourselves. And we would love to hear and hold the stories that you have about you as well. And remember, sharing our stories and practicing vulnerability creates more intimacy. And intimacy is our measure of how free we'll get. Yes. Thanks, Dr. Robin. Until next time. Until next time. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>